Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. If you have your Bibles, you can be opening to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to spend our time this morning as we continue chronologically looking at the life of Jesus Christ, the most influential life that's ever walked the face of this earth. And I hope and pray that today something will be said that will draw us close to the heart of God and that will uh, be something we can take with us. I want to start, though, with this question. And I think it's an important question. And the question is this, how does God change people? How does God change people? My guess is there are some of us who are in this auditorium today who are longing for God to change the heart of someone that they know. Maybe it's a, a child who has stopped following after the Lord. Maybe it's just someone that you've really been working on, but they just seem so distant from God. And so you've been praying and praying, God, change their heart, change their mind, change whatever's going on with them, and bring them to a new place. So how does God do that? How does God fundamentally change? transform a person. There may be some of you, even in yourselves today, who are saying, I need God to change my heart. I need God to transform me. So how does that happen? What does that look like? And I think we're going to get an answer here in Luke chapter 7. And so I want to spend some time here uh, in verses 36 through verse 50 at this incredible story uh, that happened, really happened. This is a true story. It's not some made-up fiction. This really happened uh, several years ago. Now, before I dive into the story, though, we cannot, we cannot read the Gospels without realizing the importance that Jesus places on meals and table fellowship. I mean, eating together was a big deal for Jesus. In fact, everywhere he goes, he's eating with folks, right? He accepts invitations from, from every quarter. In the Gospel of Luke, we find him eating with sinners like Levi, the tax collector, and Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. He even invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house, right? And we also see him eating with the self-proclaimed righteous, Pharisees, like we're going to read about here in Luke chapter 7. Jesus consistently moves between those in society who were designated as righteous and those in society who were labeled as sinners. In fact, he eats so much with those labeled as sinners that he's called a friend of sinners. And he just, he, that's, a, that's, a, that's a knock on him that he has this fellowship with those who are just labeled in society. And in Luke 7, we have a story of Jesus eating with a Pharisee named Simon. Now, I wish I knew the motivation that Simon had for inviting Jesus to dinner that night. Had he seen the miracles that Jesus had performed? And was he hoping that maybe Jesus would perform one in his sight? I, I don't know. Did Simon intend to engage Jesus in a discussion of the law? Maybe he was a genuine seeker of the kingdom of God. We're not told why Simon invited Jesus over. We only know that Simon did that. But what we do know is that Simon, when Jesus arrives, does not give Jesus any kind of special treatment whatsoever. 
He, he, he receives no basin to wash his feet. He receives no towel to dry those feet. No, uh, no, no anointing of his head. Nothing. He gets none of that. Which would have been common. Which would have been uh, expected in that society in that day and time. And so Jesus comes to this dinner party and he gets nothing from the host. And whatever Simon's motivation was, uh, his plan for the evening goes astray quickly. His plan backfires because into the midst of this festive meal comes a woman who is labeled as a sinner. Her presence at this party is not so much the issue, but it is her behavior that is. It creates this amazing spectacle. You see, beggars and street people often entered garden parties like this and they stood far away on the wall or something like that. They were never kicked out of these parties. They were always allowed to stay. And at the end of the meal, they would sometimes get the leftovers or the scraps from the table. It was a way for the wealthy to show how generous they were. <laughs> and so this lady, her presence there isn't the problem. Uh, people like this were often allowed to overhear from a respectable distance whatever discussions might have been taking place at the table. But this story is different. This woman disregards social etiquette. She's not content to sit in the shadows and she comes and she falls at Jesus' feet. We don't know who she is. There's some speculation out there, but we don't know who she is. She's simply referred to as a sinner. But again, what we do know is that her behavior creates quite a spectacle. Simon looks at his party and he sees it going into the tank. He knows that he's about to be the laughing stop. He's about to be the topic of the gossip at tomorrow's uh, water cooler. And, and so he's just beside himself. He, he, he's, he, he's, he's just upset at what's going on. This woman has come to anoint Jesus' feet with oil. But what happens instead is this emotional outburst of tear washing, of hair drying and feet kissing. And how people respond to this sinful woman in Jesus' presence is interesting. Jesus isn't bothered by her in the least. He's not bothered by her at all. But Simon, on the other hand, is out of his mind. And he has a question. How can Jesus, who claims to be a prophet, not recognize what's going on? Not recognize the kind of woman this is. How can he not recognize this woman? It's an amazing scene. And the question that we as readers are left with is, how is Jesus going to address this? What is he going to say to this woman? What is he going to say to Simon? How is this going to all work out? And Jesus decides to tell a story. He decides to tell a parable. It reminds me a little bit of Nathan and David. You remember that story where Nathan comes to David who has committed a grievous sin with Bathsheba and killed Uriah the Hittite and ultimately tells this story about sheep and David is beside himself when he hears it and Nathan says, oh, by the way, you're the guy that did it. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. Look at verse 40 of Luke chapter 7. <clears throat> Jesus answered, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. <laughs> A certain money, loan, money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of, both, debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled, canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. We call this the parable of two debtors. 
The parable of two debtors. And the story is deceptively simple. These debtors both share a common problem. Neither one of them is able to pay what they owe. And so since neither one of them is able to pay what they owe, the amount at this point is irrelevant because neither one has hope of ever repaying. Now, some measurements say that a denarii was a day's wages, and so one person owes 500 days' wages while the other one owes 50. But again, it doesn't matter at this point because neither one of them can pay. And it's at this point that the story takes an interesting turn. The debts are forgiven. They're just wiped clean, like the, like the tears that were on Jesus' feet. They're just wiped away. And so the question then comes, well, which one will love more? And Simon states the obvious, doesn't he? Well, of course, the one who's going to love more is the one who is forgiven more. And Jesus, through this story, has just spoken an amazing truth to both Simon and this sinful woman. This woman, completely undone, at his feet by the reality of her sinful life. This woman, beaten and crushed by society. To her, he extends a hopeful word of gracious forgiveness. And to Simon, the seemingly successful one, the secure one, to him, he declares a word of judgment. You see, Simon got the answer to the question right who would love more, but he had judged the evening's events in a completely wrong way. And so we look on in verse 44, Jesus says this, and turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you, do you see her? Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. The contrast between the sinful woman's treatment of Jesus and Simon's treatment of Jesus is great, isn't it? This sinful woman whom society thought should stay in the shadows shows great hospitality to Jesus. Her tears were expensive, her ointment was extravagant, and her kisses were a manifestation of heartfelt gratitude. And I love, love, love verse 44. Jesus asked him, do you see this woman? <laughs> of course he did. Everybody saw her. You couldn't miss her. But Jesus asked the question, did, do you see her? And Jesus exposes Simon to his failure to see what is really going on right there in his presence. You see, Simon sees nothing but a sinner. But Jesus, Jesus sees repentance. And the reality is that Jesus has between him two sinners, doesn't he? Jesus has before him two sinners. One overcome with the reality of her sins and the other smugly rejecting the full realization of his own. And in this parable, Jesus offers life-giving insight to both. It's an amazing story. Isn't it cool that every time we open the Gospels especially, we, we get to encounter Jesus. We open these ancient texts and we, we really meet him face to face. It's, it's incredible. And, and you can't, it just doesn't get old. It just doesn't. You just find new things out about this amazing Jesus whom we love and whom we serve. But I want to I wanna caution us here. Don't be guilty of the same thing as this Pharisee and just call him a hypocrite. 
right? We, we throw that word around loosely today. But in that day, the Pharisees were the moral compasses of society. I, I mean, they were highly respected. And it's really easy for us to dismiss them as shallow because of how Jesus interacts with them and how the Gospels present them. But Jesus didn't do that and neither should we. The Pharisees were models of religious devotion. They were models of moral seriousness. They struggled every day to live in conformity to the Word of God. The problem, though, and Jesus points this out clearly, the problem was that their zeal for the truth created a problem. Because in their zealousness to guard the truth, they became convinced that God intended them to distance themselves from those who had avoided or who rejected the truth or who weren't like them. And that's not at all what God had in mind for his people. And I want to say this, this is another lesson for another time. You know, I think God can guard the truth all by himself without us. I think he's done a pretty good job of that over the last several thousand years. He doesn't need us to guard the truth, but he does need us to proclaim his truth. He does need us to proclaim it. Simon, for Simon, the thought that God might have a place in his kingdom for such women like this was just incomprehensible. And so what did he do? He walked away from her. He distanced himself from her. But Jesus embraced such people. And Jesus actually extends to such people an invitation into the kingdom of God. And in fact, Simon's response shows that he doubts Jesus' prophetic credentials. How can he not know what kind of woman is touching him? He doubts Jesus, right? But Jesus' question to Simon is really a question to every single one of us. Do we see this woman? We look at our lives, and I think many of us probably live closer to Simon than we do to this sinful woman. Most of us sitting in this room today, we have control of our lives. In some ways, we've whipped the world, and we are successful. Our lives are neatly pressed. They're orderly. They're neat. How many times, though, like Simon, have we embraced truth at the expense of grace? It's an important question. You see, you and I love the concept of forgiveness. We just struggle with the actual practice of it sometimes, don't we? We want to be in charge of who gets forgiveness and who doesn't. And what happens is it becomes easier for us to avoid association with sinners than it does to engage in the messiness of forgiveness. But I wonder, I just wonder if deep down, deep down in the back of our hearts, if we know that really when we cut to the chase, that we really do have a whole lot more in common with this sinful woman than we'd like to admit. And in the presence of the Son of God, honesty forces us to acknowledge our utter unworthiness and sinfulness. And hopefully, in the presence of the Son of God, we recognize how desperately we need His grace. And this woman finds in Jesus what Simon was too blind to see. She finds unconditional forgiveness. She finds acceptance. And in finding it, she cannot contain herself. And she falls at Jesus' feet in uncontrollable gratitude. When's the last time you did that? 
But the point I want you to see from this today is that you and I can only see life through the life of Jesus, through the eyes of Jesus, after we have seen life through the eyes of this sinful woman. We're never going to be able to see like Jesus sees if we don't first recognize life through her eyes. You see, Simon's view of righteousness caused him to distance himself from the sinner. Jesus' view of forgiveness causes him to welcome the sinner. But the main point is this. Where Simon saw a huge gulf between himself and this woman, Jesus saw two debtors, both who couldn't pay the debt. Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Entrance into God's kingdom comes only with canceled debts. She saw it. Simon did not. I'm just wondering if we see it. Do we see it? Because this text is either a threat or it is a promise. Because we too stand before God as debtors, right? Yes, right? That's who all of us are. We are all closer to this sinful woman than we are to Simon. We are all sinners. We stand before God as debtors. And how we respond to Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God determines whether or not this parable is one of hope for us or one of condemnation. If we take Simon's view and we start distancing ourselves from anyone who's not like us or thinks like us or talks like us or votes like us, then this can only intend judgment. But if we hear it from the one woman's perspective, man, it offers hope and it offers life. And it's only when we see ourselves as the sinful woman saw herself that we will begin to see others as Jesus saw others. Debtors in need of a forgiving God. Jesus wraps up this section of scripture in verses 48 and 49. He says... To her, your sins are forgiven. And that, that causes a great big problem for those sitting around the table. And they say, who is this that even forgives sins at the end of verse 49? And then Jesus says to this woman, your faith has saved you. And then he says these three words. Go in peace. Go in peace. Where is she supposed to go in peace? Where's she supposed to go? Fred Craddock said it this way, and I think he nailed it. He said, she needs a church. Not just any church, but a church of forgiven sinners, welcoming sinners in need of forgiveness. The only place she is welcome is among people like herself. What she needs is a community of forgiven and forgiving sinners. This story screams the need for a church, not just any church, but one that says, you're welcome here. You know what's coming next, right? The question, are we that church? Is the Beltline Church of Christ that church? A church of forgiven sinners who are welcoming sinners in need of forgiveness. Is that who we are? How can we make sure that we are? Let me give you three things quickly. How can we make sure that we're a church for people like her that Jesus flocked to and that flocked to Jesus? 
First, we've got to meet people where they are. It makes zero sense for us to expect people who have never walked with Jesus to know everything, to believe everything, to understand everything, to see everything, to know our language, to know all of those things that we've done because we've done this for our whole... It makes no sense for us to expect that from them. We've got to meet them where they are. And it makes no sense for us to even expect that all of us who have walked with Jesus for as many years as we have are still going to do that perfectly all the time. We're not. And so we meet people where they are. We have to love people right where they are. Even if it makes us uncomfortable, we've got to love people right where they are and then love them into a deeper relationship with Jesus. We grow together. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he says, I became all things to all people because I just wanted to win some of them. I just wanted more to come to know Jesus. I just wanted more to come into his presence. I just wanted more to understand his amazing grace and forgiveness. And so I did whatever it took to get people who didn't know him to start knowing him. I met them where they were. Jesus doesn't ask one thing from this woman. He doesn't ask her to anoint his feet. He doesn't ask her to do any of these things. He just, in an act of grace through faith, saves her, forgives her, and gives her what she needs, acceptance. Not only, though, do we need to meet people where they are, we need to raise the bar. You say, okay, wait a minute. How does meeting people where they are and raising the bar, how do those two things go together? That doesn't make a lot of sense, preacher. Oh, it does. Stay with me. <laughs> Far too often, you and I, we settle for mediocre discipleship. We don't challenge people to be more than they are. We are content with people just walking in the back door of a church building rather than calling them to be exactly who God calls them to be followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. We have settled for mediocre discipleship, and so I think we need to raise the bar. Remember the account of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery? They throw her at Jesus' feet. They say, she deserves to be stoned. What are you going to do about it, Jesus? He says, yeah, y'all go ahead. Whichever one of you is sinless, go ahead and pick up the stone and crush her skull with it if you so desire. But what happened? They all walked away from the oldest to the youngest, right? And then Jesus is left there with her. And he says, what happened to those accusers of yours? Did, did, anyone, did anyone pick up a rock? She says, no. He says, I'm not going to condemn you either. But, you remember what he said? Go and send no more. I'm going to raise the bar. I'm going to meet you where you are. I'm going to meet you in your, in your state, wherever that might be. And then I'm going to call you to something more. And sometimes, especially at church, again, we're just happy to have people walk in. And as long as they're coming, we're good. But attendance at service is not the only thing Jesus wants. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. And the world that we live in, especially right now, the standard is continually lowering. We need to change that. We need to raise the bar. We're not called to be like everyone else. We are called to be different. We're called to be set apart. We, through the power of Jesus Christ, can do better than we are right now. None of us, none of us has peaked in our service to Jesus Christ. Are we that church of forgiven sinners, welcoming sinners in need of forgiveness? Well, we are if we meet people where they are and then call them to something more. Raise the bar. But ultimately, number three, and this is huge, 
If we're going to be that church, then we need to remember and never forget that we too are debtors in desperate need of God's grace. We can't be like Simon who sees a huge difference between himself and this sinner. Look down, looking down our noses at people. No, because when it gets right down to it, Jesus is right. We are all debtors who cannot pay. And but for the blood of Jesus, we would all be condemned. We're not better than anyone else. We're debtors whose debts have been canceled by the blood of Jesus. A great question for us to consider is this. Why? Why were those outsiders, tax collectors, sinners, why were they so drawn to Jesus? What did, they, what did they sense from him that made his message so powerful in them? And, and then the question should be, should not the church, while upholding God's truth and character, be equally open and engaging those outsiders? Remember, it is Jesus, not us, who has the right to forgive sins. It's not your job. He is the one who calls the heart to change. And any righteousness we possess comes because He has worked in our lives, not because we've done something. We haven't earned a thing. We have only received it because of His grace. And so our response should be exactly, it should look exactly like this woman in Luke chapter 7. Our response when we recognize what he's done in our lives, we should fall at his feet in uncontrollable gratitude. So, we began this lesson with a question. How does God change people? How does he fundamentally change our hearts? And here's the answer. Based on the authority of Jesus Christ himself found in Luke chapter 7. God changes people through his offer of grace and forgiveness. You say, wait a minute, I just, I get that, but I need him to zap them. I just need him to change. I just need him to transform. I just, Steve, it's got to be more than that. It can't, it can't just be... This is how God chooses to change people. He offers him his grace. He offers them his forgiveness. And he says, there it is. And sometimes we get disappointed in that answer. And I'm like, how, how can we be disappointed in that answer? So here's what that means. Here's what that means. That person that you want so desperately to change, you've got to keep offering them his grace and his forgiveness. You don't give up on them. You don't turn away from them. You continually tell them and show them and point them again and again and again and again to the offer of God's grace and his forgiveness. Unmerited favor, his grace and forgiveness. We keep coming back to that truth. And maybe it'll change them or maybe it won't. But, but I believe at some point as we offer this over and over, as we show uncommon love and concern and compassion and grace and and forgiveness, I believe that hearts still can change. 
And if anything's going to change a heart, it's going to be coming to understand his amazing grace and his forgiveness. And listen, that grace and forgiveness is still available today. It's still available today. It's available to you. It's available to me. It's available to that person who you so desperately want their heart changed. It's available to them. We just got to keep pointing them to Jesus. We just got to keep reminding them of Jesus. We've got to keep showing them Jesus and how we treat them and how we treat others. And we collectively need to be a church of forgiven sinners who are welcoming people in need of forgiveness. No matter how messy that gets, we've got to be that church. Still available today. He offers that grace and forgiveness still. Will you take him up on his offer? Will you have your heart transformed today by coming in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ? I sure hope that you will. If we can pray for you, if you need to obey the gospel, we stand ready to help you in any way that we can. If you got people that you just got on your heart and mind that you just want so desperately to come to Jesus, well then let us pray for them too. And let us pray for you as you continue to offer his grace and his forgiveness to them because that is what the world needs most. Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama, we would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.